Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to another episode of the Islam Through the Ages podcast. I'm your host, Thaqib Musa. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'm joined today from, uh, well, remotely from Doha, Qatar, uh, with Dr. Joseph Lombard. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Dr. Joseph Lombard is, the, is an associate professor of Quranic studies at the College of Islamic Studies at the Hamad bin Khalifa University. He has extensive experience studying uh, contemporary Islamic studies. He has a PhD from Yale University. Uh, he's also taught at the American University of Sharjah, um, at the American University in Cairo, uh, Brandeis University, and his experience as a scholar, as an academic, um, is quite extensive, which includes um, as an advisor to the uh, Jordanian Royal Court um, in various different countries. Um, and so we're really, really pleased to have you Hopefully, this is going to be a multi-episode, multi-faceted, multi-tiered discussion. Um, so we're really excited to have you, uh, Dr. Lombard. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much. It's my honor. Um, thank you. So today we're talking uh, about, well, we're going a little bit, taking a step back. So we plan to do decolonial studies. And when we started uh, looking at it, started doing the research behind the episode, we realized that it's very, very important um, to talk about what underpins everything, which is Orientalism. So we wanted to kick off the discussion on Orientalism. And I think I want to start right at the very basics. So many of our listeners maybe have never heard of Orientalism or have heard of Orientalism vis-a-vis the book written by Edward Said, and they've never heard of anything else um, in terms of Orientalism. So how would you explain the topic or the concept of Orientalism uh, to a lay Muslim? Well, I think, first of all, when you talk of, of Orientalism, you need to realize that the term itself is applied in multiple different ways. Uh, one of the, the fundamental things is that Orientalism can be understood just as the study of the Orient. And in this regard, it can be seen as something that is perfectly innocent and innocuous. Um, but the way in which Edward Said is addressing the phenomena that he is addressing in the book by the same name is the means by which this became a way of construing the culture, political environment, and intellectual culture of others, and really kind of for the purposes of dominating over non-Western cultures and even shaping them in the ways that they could then be, shall we say, more pliable subjects. Um, both in terms of the, uh, the political complicity of the people, the political malleability of the people, but also in terms of dominating over their intellectual representations. So I think you, you mentioned a distinction there between the definition that Edward Said uses and such a concept as actual Orientalism. Is that, is that a fair distinction? Um, well, he I, actually makes a distinction. I mean, he says in his book, he says that, that you could use the term in three different ways. Um, and uh, and I, I think you can kind of cut it down to two. Um, one is, a, and, and this is fair, because there are people who will say, well, I'm an Orientalist. Um, but, you know, I'm really trying to be as objective and fair as I can be. Um, and, and I don't have any, uh, any objective of dominating over another culture. I just like, I'm really interested in these texts and I write about them and this is what I think. Um, and this is based upon all of my experience in studying with this. 
Now, people such as Wa'il Hala would say, well, this has come to such a point that you really can't make a statement like that. You need to realize the depth of uh, secular humanism into which the discipline was at first uh, you know, plunged and from which it arose, and the way in which the entire discipline is actually designed to perpetuate and extend the paradigm of secular humanism and shape the rest of the world according to it, or shall we say the paradigms. So it's, um, it's, it's I think Orientalism, the way a lot of people think about it in the modern sense is as a bygone science, as something that existed before it was used as part of the, uh, as part of the past or during the domination um, of the West. To what extent is that fair and to what extent is it still a relevant topic? Palestine, Rohingya, the Uyghurs, Kashmir, Afghanistan. That's the extent to which it's still a relevant topic. I mean, these political structures that are occurring, they are not disengaged from the, uh, from the manner in which Muslims have been represented within the academy. I mean, George Orwell, I, I don't know the exact quote, but he basically says, who controls the past controls uh, controls the future, and who controls the present controls the past. And so who is writing about us? Who is creating the narratives by which Muslim civilizations and Muslim, uh, Muslim intellectual traditions are known? Uh, most of that, what we now call knowledge production, is still occurring within Euro-American academies, and there is not really a space for self-representation of Muslims within that. And yet these are the powers that are used to dominate over Muslims. And you just look at the rhetoric that comes out about Palestinians, and you look at people who are actually saying, well, who are claimed to be liberal, but they say, well, you know, the problem is, is that the Palestinians treat their women in X, Y, and Z manner. And therefore, I'm not sure if I should be supporting them. Well, they're buying into an entire narrative there. So you're not sure if you should be on the side of the oppressed because somebody has given you a narrative about how they treat their women, about how they would be uh, non-democratic if they actually could rule over themselves. You've got no proof of that except for these little bits that you're given uh, in the news. That news production comes from university training itself. That comes from an entire intellectual background. Anybody who thinks that this is not still relevant today is really just burning their head in the sand. So how, was, how, how have we come to kind of this point where, you know, you talked about the, the oppressor or the oppressed people can become blamed. And in fact, the oppressor becomes the one that we in the West and especially kind of a normal Western person or the normative Western psyche um, takes aside of the oppressor um, in many of these cases. How have we come to that and how has Orientalism helped shape that over time? Well, this is a very good question. And this is one of the reasons why I think that, uh, that it's one of the shortcomings of, uh, of Edward Said's presentation that I think Wal Halak is quite right in addressing in his book, Restating Orientalism, part of his, his whole larger project. But basically it's a process by which, um, shall we say the whole of the self-representation 
of not just Muslims, but of other peoples was construed as being invalid. There's a way in which you separate um, the, uh, the tradition from its own heuristic self-engagement. And then they say that there's kind of it's a cutoff time when you say that no longer are these people qualified to represent their own textual traditions. And hey, maybe they never really have been. The only thing that is the only people that are really qualified to do this now are those with the academic training who are well ensconced within Yale, Harvard, Notre Dame, Stanford, Oxford, Cambridge, the Sorbonne, etc. And so what ends up happening here is that over time, the Muslims get to be represented in a way that just supports Western paradigms, that is in accord with secular humanistic paradigms and becomes further and further detached from the way in which Muslims would present themselves and in which they have traditionally conceived themselves. But this doesn't just happen to Muslims. I mean, you see this happen in traditions all over the world. It particularly happens with indigenous peoples. If you want a great example of how much is really on the line here, look at the history of how Native Americans were represented. Native Americans were in a sense, uh, they were demonized and people who wanted to deeply understand them on their own terms were also demonized. And then once they were a completely subjugated peoples and there was really no chance of there being a new civilization that would arise from those ashes because of the extent of the power that the white man had obtained within the continental United States or within actually all of the Americas, at that point, people actually became interested in their own narrative. There was more Native American information available before, but only when they had been completely dominated did it actually become of interest to have books such as Black Elk Speaks in which you could actually let those traditions speak for themselves. And this is something that you see all over. And this is one of the reasons why we have to realize that there's a deep engagement between politics, political domination, wealth, and this type of power, and epistemic domination. What, what period would you say this, this whole thing started? So was it a case that Orientalism followed the power or Orientalism laid the foundations and the justifications for the subjugation? Well, I, I think that it laid it laid the the foundations and the and uh, for the subjugation. But this is where I think that um, uh, both, um, you know, uh, Tamako Matsuzawa in her book, um, the uh, I forget the exact title. It's like the foundations or the beginning of world religions. She talks about how all of these various disciplines kind of grew out of the Enlightenment. That you know, anthropology and Orientalism were in particular the disciplines that developed for studying non-Western peoples. Sociology, we had for studying Western peoples. And then we had economics that we're really talking, we're only interested in Western economics here. And you know, forget the fact that there's Buddhist economics, forget the fact that there's Islamic economics, even forget the fact that there's traditional Catholic economics. We're only interested in modern economics here. Law and other disciplines, these were all part of how you investigate the West. 
but then anthropology and Orientalism in particular for how you study other cultures. Anthropology is how we study those cultures that we consider to be, quote, less civilized, unquote, again, a loaded term. How, what do you call civilized? And then Orientalism is how we study those more textual and urban cultures, uh, non-Western cultures that we encounter. Now, this is a post-Enlightenment phenomena, and it really kind of, it, it really kind of, you might say, takes shape. These particular universities or university disciplines, academic disciplines, take place, take shape within the, uh, the 19th century and the early 20th century. And then it's in the early 20th, early 20th century that we have the phenomena of the idea of the world's religions as a discipline also takes shape. And that kind of becomes an extension of Orientalism. Um, and of course, I mean, that's all a whole nother set of categories because it ends up being really very Protestant ways of conceptualizing religion, but also very secular ways of conceptualizing religion that are going to favor the, uh, the Christian heritage. They weren't interested in what we now call Judeo-Christian heritage. Uh, that is something that really came about in the 1950s um, and was really in 60s and was really you know, a great accomplishment on the part of Jewish intellectuals. Um, but you know, really the Christian traditions and how other traditions were conceptualized in relation to that and in relation to the secular humanism that developed out of the Christian West. So that really is a point where we can say that a lot of this began. In the way that Edward Said studies this, um, I think that he doesn't fully go back to those roots as effectively as he could have. Um, and, uh, and as a result, and this is where Wael Halak comes up and, and, and critiques him and says, doesn't, uh, he doesn't treat Orientalism as actually the product of an entire system of domination over the world. And so anthropology was one of them, even sociology in some ways, even the way that modern economics has been developed, uh, that all of these were actually ways of promoting the Western cultural, political, and epistemic domination of others. So in terms of the impact on the ground, so it's, it's I mean, it sounds like it's more of, you've talked about it as a system of total subjugation and domination from all of these different fields. And in the modern sense, it's manifested itself um, with the things that affect, for most Muslims, affect us day to day, um, or are the issues that are we're most commonly, um, we most commonly associate with Rohingya, Israel, etc. Going back, how has the impact been in the past few centuries post-Enlightenment of Orientalism and Oriental science building up to now? And how has the impact changed? I mean, the impact is, is, is tremendous. I mean, when, when Napoleon was in, was in Egypt, I mean, I've heard, I've read some stats that they basically on average killed an alam a day. Um, and I mean, that's really incredible. And just, and just then like so many of the intelligentsia were in fact killed in various, in various parts of the Muslim world. And there hasn't even been a full accounting of what's happened as a result, the way in which there's been a cutoff from our intellectual traditions just because of the killing of the intelligentsia. Um, but then, you know, in addition to that, there's been this, pro this kind of slow trend whereby people within the Muslim world felt that their traditions were, quote, behind the times. 
um, and then came to reconceptualize their traditions in many different ways, often due to a sense of inferiority vis-a-vis -vis the West. Uh, some of this comes with, uh, you know, really you've got very modernistic reformist traditions. And, uh, and then on the other hand, you can even see some of the very strident puritanical traditions, some of the, the most kind of strident uh, expressions of Salafism and Wahhabism, not all of it, but it, of Salafism in particular, not all of it, but some of the most strident manifestations are almost like saying the West says, okay, well, you're just a dry legalistic tradition. And they're like, yes, we are. And we're gonna double down on that um, and turn Islam into this almost just this rote set of laws with almost no life within it. Um, and which is, you know, it's a manifestation that does happen at other times, but this way in which it has arisen in some parts of the Islamic world has almost been a response to the manner in which Islamic civilization was represented uh, by the West. And then on the other hand, you've had those, as I said before, who have tried to kind of um, really go back into the tradition and say, well, actually, we just need to kind of modernize all of these things. And have ended up, for example, with the, the kind of extremist Quranist movement, which tries to get rid of all of the Hadith, that can really be seen as a response to the criticism of the Hadith that occurred within the Orientalist tradition. And in the Orientalist tradition themselves, if you've studied the Hadith sciences with a real expert in Hadith, and then you read the criticisms that come from people like Golzahir and Shah and Yoimbol, you realize that those people didn't actually really understand how the Hadith sciences worked in great depth. Um, and yet this becomes the kind of paradigm that, uh, that now shifts. And that paradigm, even when we get away from what the exact words that they said, it still has this residual effect within how the hadith are conceptualized i mean the kind of the most the most interesting thing about what you said there was you described a lot of the modern islamic movements and how many of them are rooted in or at least partially rooted in orientalist practices where people double down or something uh, on something that kind of it was the image that the west created and then people kind of grew to fit those images because there was nothing else available. Do you think in terms of Muslims around, how many Muslims or how many of our movements have been impacted by um, the Orientalism, the relationship of power, the domination of the West? And would it, would it even be fair to say that nearly every major Muslim, Muslim movement that exists right now is influenced or shaped in some way, shape or form um, by the overwhelming presence of Orientalism? Well, they have to be. I mean, given, given the, the dominance of, uh, of Western norms, Western culture, um, you know, just, I mean, it is the United States that dominates shipping lanes throughout the world. That's the basic purpose of the United States military is to make sure that they are controlling trade uh, everywhere that trade happens. Um, and, uh, and even though, so everybody is reacting to it in some way, shape or form even those manifestations of Islam that you could say do maintain greater continuity with the um, medieval scholastic tradition, 
and, and represent a dialogue and continuation of it, they cannot but be in dialogue with the transformations that Muslim civilizations have undergone as a result of colonialism. So coming to kind of the objectives widely of Orientalism, and I think in terms of how it's manifested itself, it's, it's been used a lot as a tool. Do you think when it started off, was that the stated objective? Um, and was it always a case of this is what it's going to be used for? Um, did it start off as a curiosity and then meld it slowly? So kind of what have the objectives of Orientalism been and how have they changed um, over the course of the last few centuries? I, I don't really think that the objectives of, uh, of Orientalism have changed so much from what you have. As, as regards Islam uh, in particular, I don't think that they've changed so much from what you see in a lot of the uh, medieval writings um, about Islam. You know, in some of the very first translations of the Quran, um, that they're actually saying that this is written, I think that there's an introduction that was written by Martin Luther to a reprint of the Latin translation. So we're talking here in the 16th century. And it basically says that this is done so that people can understand the Mohammedan heresy. All right. So uh, because we don't consider it a religious heresy anymore, it doesn't mean it's not treated as a heresy. It's treated as a heresy vis-a-vis secular humanism, which is assumed as a norm. Um, and often in very un, in many unstated and subtle ways, but this is assumed as a norm, and so uh, and so that kind of the, the way in which a lot of those presuppositions regarding the prophet, and so the prophet didn't meet up to uh, this expectation of what we would want in a prophet, and so you see earlier that they just say that he's a heretic, and then later on people start to say, well, you know, I mean. He wasn't at the level of Moses or Jesus. Uh, he was kind of like one of these Greek uh, orators or something. So they're trying to say, well, at least he has some decent status. You know, and then later on, people drop that attitude. And you even have in the early writings of, of people such as Noldeke, who's considered the father of Quranic studies, they're saying that you know, uh, Muhammad was uttering these statements and may not have fully understood what he was saying. And, uh, and you know, he certainly um, had a vivid imagination, but it doesn't rise to the level of, of Jesus and Muhammad. This becomes, this is a standard that you have throughout, and this goes into the early 20th century. All right. And so, but then the standards of Western civilization are changing. And the idea of a of Christian, and here with a lot of these figures, we're talking about Christian morality, which then later becomes expressed as Judeo-Christian morality, that they're saying that Islam doesn't live up to that type of morality. Well, what are they basically they're saying? They're basically saying that from the current ideological paradigm that we think is proper for a functioning civilization, that they are not capable of that so long as they continue along their cultural and intellectual norms. In other words, it's a heresy from a secular perspective. So it's, it's morally bankrupt. Um, yeah. I think something you mentioned there, which isn't strictly to do with Orientalism, but it, it really struck me is you talked about the evolution of Western 
moral philosophy almost or moral thought from a Christian and then later a Judeo-Christian tradition and how those two kind of came together. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on that and, and how that process happened? How did, how did the West become so secular and where did the marriage of Christian, when, when did Christian become Judeo-Christian? Oh, well, those are two different things. I mean, Ju Christian became Judeo-Christian um, after, uh, after the Second World War uh, and, and after the Holocaust. Um, I mean, you, you could almost say that it's almost a function of the guilt um, that the West felt um, as, uh, as the realities of the Holocaust uh, became more apparent. Um, and then, uh, and also, I mean, a very brilliant move. I mean, there are a lot of, of Jewish intellectuals who basically realized, hey man, it's do or die. Like we don't, like we need to figure out how to survive as a community because if that happens again, that's the end of us. Um, and so one of, the, one of the ways to do that was this. And I mean, I, I have to take my hats off to them. It's been a, it was a brilliant intellectual move. And I think that Jonathan Sarna uh, in his book on Judaism in America, I forget the exact title, but I think he identified this as, you know, as perhaps the, the, one of the most important, or one of the three most important uh, transformations of Judaism in the United States of America in the 20th century. Uh, so that's, that's about the time frame that that happens. Um, but then as regards, uh, as regards the moral transformation, oh man, that, that is a, I am really not, I don't think I'm qualified uh, mm. to, uh, to fully answer that question properly. There are people who are great experts uh, in the Western intellectual tradition um, who could answer that far more effectively than myself. So I'm going to have to take a pass on that particular question. No, I appreciate it. I think it'll be, it'll be something we bring, up, uh, we bring up later. But coming back to kind of Orientalism. So I went on a little bit of a tangent about the West's development as in and of itself. What about the West's understanding of Islam and Muslims, especially by the Western elite, and then comparing that to the understanding by Western common folk, and how that's changed over time as well? Well, you know, I mean, the, the, there is more tolerance of Islam on a general level, um, you might say, and just as a result of, uh, of immigration. I mean, when you can find some, uh, some very positive things that are uh, that are written by uh, some people within uh, within the West these days, and some very sympathetic approaches uh, to Islam. Nonetheless, many of the stereotypes that um, that portray Islam and Muslims as the intractable other um, really do originate within intellectual discourse and then are continued and perpetuated in many different levels of society. So for example, we spoke before about how in the history of the translation of the Quran, there were these introductions that would speak about how this is just to understand you know, this particular heresy uh, in a sense. And that's the way that it was understood in the Christian West for the most part, it's the heresy. Um, but then in the, in the secular, you know, say as we transform into the secular period in the 19th and 20th centuries, um, that there is the, the ways in which we're kind of presenting Muslims as an other who doesn't quite fully have the capacity 
to live up to the same moral standards that we do in the West. But, you know, they're a major world religion, and so they have some ideas, but they've taken a lot of that from us. Um, and even like you even have, you know, this is in Noldica, that there's the impression that what was good, for those who don't know, Noldica is writing in the late uh, 19th or 20th century. So, and he's considered, as I said before, the father of chronic studies, that he's actually writing that, you know, that, uh, that this is an, uh, you know, a nice approximation of the moral world view of, of, of Christianity, but it doesn't fully get there and it doesn't have the capacity uh, to fully get there. Uh, those particular ideas still exist within the certain representatives within the academy. And there's people who will push back and say it doesn't. I can't tell you the amount of messages and emails that I've gotten from other Muslims about, hey, this happened to me, how do I deal with that? You know, such and such a professor said to me, well, women are you know, 15th class citizens in uh, such and such country that you came from. Um, you know, and this is a woman saying, and so I've come here now. And so this person, like, he actually thinks that he's going to be liberating me by the fact that I have now come to such and such a country to get an education. Uh, and this idea that, uh, that the Muslims are going to be liberated by the West, that is still there. I mean, that, that's all over there. That's, you know, when George Bush is saying you're either with us or against us and referring to going to the Middle East and Iraq as a crusade, that's exactly what that idea is. And so just as the ideas that the, the many of the soldiers uh, who went on the Crusades were manifesting the extreme edge of the idea of Islam as a heresy, so too you've got a general feeling that a general distrust of Islam that exists within many facets of Western civilization. And it's rising up now. I mean, you've got it like if you start, like you could actually do an interesting thing where you like, if you were to go on Twitter and you were to type like, um, you know, um, Quran in Norway and type it in Norwegian. It's easy to do Google Translate, type Quran in Norway. You're going to actually see that most of the Twitter posts are by Norwegians about how Islam is this threat that is spreading. And you'll find the same thing happening in Hungary. You'll find the same thing happening in even countries that we consider to be liberal, such as Norway or such as Sweden. Um, and so this is really a phenomenon that is continuing, you know, in many fundamental ways. These are people that can't live by our values and our values are superior and they represent an existential threat to our values. Therefore, they must be controlled and contained. That attitude still exists and it still exists within the academy as much as people want to deny it. But there's this, there are these subtle ways in which um, I'd say the hermeneutical exclusion of Muslims or the hermeneutical marginalization of Muslims is at the core of the academic discussion of Islam within the Euro-American Academy, which is to say that the methodologies that derive from the secular humanistic paradigm are the proper methodologies for understanding peoples, civilizations, religions, cultures, intellectual traditions, and methodologies that arise from with 
within other traditions may only be studied as an object of knowledge, but may not be viewed as having heuristic value wherein they could interrogate and present their own tradition to us, or even wherein they could have a, a interrogation of our paradigms and our civilization that is of value. They are in effect rendered almost like museum pieces. So for example, we study the Hadith and the Quran, and maybe even you know, we could put Al-Ghazali Tafsir over here, right? We study them as, as an object over here, but the whole tradition that Muslims have developed for interrogating the Hadith and the Quran, for building upon that in all of their various intellectual traditions, be they Sunni or Shiite, that is a separate field of study. And the two should not be used. This field of study, where we're studying their intellectual traditions, that's only an object of study. It may not be a subject which produces the paradigms by which we understand this other material and by which we actually understand and live in the world itself. This is something that, that there are many scholars who still try to keep this kind of hermeneutical, this, this seal between the two. And that is a function of uh, what we call kind of epistemic colonization. And that epistemic colonization is fundamental to maintaining the control over people who are seen as other. So that point about epistemic colonization, I, I think what you're what you're saying is that um, it's the the effect of colonization, the effect of orientalistic mindsets and the domination has even seeped into the way we approach Islamic studies um, with the very clear demarcation of subjects. Um, and was there was there a point pre-colonization, pre-domination uh, by the West where that didn't happen? Um, and kind of scholars were more polymaths. Uh, I mean, I think that you could find scholars who were more polymaths, but um, in terms of this attitude, I mean, it's really it's really the remnant and the continuation of the uh, of the Christian attitude um, towards uh, towards Islamic civilization. I mean, one of the things that that some people, you know, I, I think Edward Said brings this up, and many other scholars have brought this up is that as regards uh, the, uh, the Christian West, you know, Islam was always the great other. Uh, Islam had uh, you know, bordered with almost every major world civilization except for Native American traditions and of course the indigenous peoples of, of Australia. Um, and probably we could say Japanese civilization as well. But Chinese civilization, Indian civilizations, African civilizations, you know, European civilizations, these are all civilizations and all of their various religious traditions. These are all civilizations that Islamic civilization bordered on. The Christian West really only bordered on Islam for a period of, you know, some 500 years after you have all of the, the various um, conquests that happened. So this is the major, uh, this is the major civilization. So Islam was the major other and Byzantium to some, to some extent, so the Orthodox Church. Um, but that really was the major other. And so it almost becomes a fixation in, uh, in the minds of Europeans and in the representation of Islam. How do we deal with this heresy? The other thing is, is that Christianity 
you know, it took 500 to 600 years to kind of really figure out what it was fully and even agree upon its book. And even to this day, there are some Christian communities that don't fully agree upon the books that are in the New Testament, um, so in the Syriac church. Whereas, so they're still kind of getting their stuff together and getting through a lot of their various disputes. And all of a sudden, Islam comes along and what is what we could say is 500 years of development within the Christian tradition happens in about, you know, 70 years within the Islamic tradition, and it emerges as a full-fledged religion. And due to kind of the area in which it arose and the weakness of the adjacent empires, also as a powerful empire quite quickly. Um, and so this really is, it's almost a shock if you've been dedicated to the Christian cause and the development of, of the Christian church. And so this has almost always kind of had this residual influence over the centuries in the conceptualization of Islam as the great other within, uh, within you know, European civilization from the Christian era into the more secular humanist era. The, so uh, yeah, I, think, I think that that point, it keeps striking me is how, how, that, how that development happened. And I think, as you said, that's that's a whole other conversation that we need to have in terms of yeah. in terms of Muslims taking on or um, Islam and Muslims generally, Muslim scholarship taking on ideas. Um, what other beliefs have Muslims accepted, especially like kind of common Muslims, not even the scholarly class? Um, but what beliefs have Muslims accepted um, that have their origin in Orientalist thought of, that have now become kind of bedrock to us as well? I mean, I don't know about bedrock. Uh, there are a lot of, of, I wouldn't say that they're bedrock necessarily, but one of the things that you do have is um, the way in which the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has been kind of almost um, removed from the understanding and conceptualization of the tradition uh, in, uh, in certain arenas. Um, so you have this among some modernists and you have this among some strident puritanicalists or it's like, okay, he was just like the messenger and now we're just working with the information in a sense uh, that the Prophet gave us. This is not how classical Islam functioned. I mean, when you, after the Quran, the two most widely read and distributed books in the whole of Islam are the, uh, are the, um, the Burda, the poem on the life of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and, uh, and the Dala'l al-Khayrat of al-Jazuli. This is just studying the manuscript tradition. So, and these are devotions upon the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You even see them that in certain places in Turkey, it, what do you have in the mosques? You have Quran and verses from the Burda of al-Busiri. Uh, so this was, you know, this was part and parcel of how Islam was lived, of how Islam was conceptualized, um, and part of everyday life even. And this is something that in our intellectual traditions and in the daily lives of many Muslims has unfortunately changed. And a lot of that is a, uh, is a response, at least I think it's a direct response, to the way in which uh, there were efforts to transform 
um, the manner in which Islam was practiced and in which Islam was conceptualized. Um, I'm quite interested by that point because, in fact, I've, and again, it's not, it's not an academic um, uh, kind of uh, discussion of, of in that sense. Um, but I guess my question kind of is, what I've, what I've heard in some spaces is that the, the elevation of the Prophet's status to kind of a superhuman level is actually something that we got from Christian sources. So is that, is that kind of a... <laughs> yeah, that's not true. No. So, <laughs> I so mean, that's... That's, that's, that, that's just, you know, I mean, the, the discussions of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam you know, in, in, the classical, in the classical tradition, I mean, in the classical tradition, the, par, the prophet is part of daily life. Uh, and this is even when we talk about, about the Quran, the relationship between the Quran and the Sunnah, you know, they actually say that, that you understand the Quran through the Sunnah, that in fact, the Sunnah becomes more important for how we apply the Quran. You could almost say that it's the Quran that establishes the importance and the validity of the Sunnah, and it's the Sunnah that teaches us how to live by the Quran. Um, and so the two are really intertwined, and in lived Islam, you need the two. And within Shiite Islam, we could say that you also need the traditions of the Al-Al-Bayt, uh, and, and the way in which, in which the Al-Al-Bayt continued the practice of Islam. So this is, they're deeply and intimately intertwined. And many of the manifestations that we've seen of Islam, just to even give us these examples, the Shahada isn't Muhammadan kana Rasulullah. He was the messenger of God. It's he is the messenger of God right here, right now, in your daily life. From the moment you wake up, every practice that you do, everything Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the messenger of God. And this aspect of Islam, that this was how Islam was lived and conceived for the vast majority of Muslims, has been lost. That's, um, I, I think that's quite, quite enlightening. Um, and, and again, a bit of a, a paradigm shifter. Um, I think my kind of last I, question... I just, make a, I just want to make a correction. I don't want to say it's been lost entirely. I mean, there are... There are there are communities that maintain that. So it's not lost entirely, but in terms of it being uh, the way in which Islam is conceived on a, cons on a civilizational level, um, it uh, has very much been lost. Um, in terms of Orientalism and the way it manifested itself, the way it was coupled with power and the phenomenal impact it had on even the development of Islam, even things we've talked about, even the way... Um, we conceptualize our own prophets, sallam. Is this a uniquely Western phenomenon? Is this something we've ever seen two civilizations do beforehand or one civilization do to the other more like um, before? Is it a uniquely Western phenomenon? Is it something that's only happened um, now? Yeah, I mean, personally, I take Wa'il Halak's side in this, which is that there was a unique form of knowledge um, that developed in the Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment era, um, that could be uh, you know, deeply blended um, with power structures and political structures, um, and that this is unique in history. 
But honestly, I don't know that it's a question we can answer. You know, there's really no way to answer it because many of the tools for the perpetuation of the structures that we identify with Orientalism uh, had to do with a lot of the technologies of domination uh, that arose in the 20th century in particular, but in the 19th century as well. And if another civilization had already had power structures in its favor at that time, would they have been as oppressive and as dominant? We would all like to think no, but that's not a question that we can ultimately answer. Within Islamic law, uh, there are principles that say that other religious communities uh, should be able to continue to live by their own standards as regards their, their communal law. And we don't have a history of Muslims going in and trying to you know, fully appropriate the intellectual traditions and dictate uh, to Jews and Christians the nature of their traditions. Now, for example, Coptic Christianity, um, the nature of, uh, of Coptic theology is actually is very much opposed uh, to, uh, to anything that, that would be more amenable to a, to a Muslim ruler. Uh, of any kind, and that community has continued. Yes, sometimes under oppression, and not exonerating Muslims uh, for periods of, of oppression of the Coptic community. But in terms of trying to define Coptic Christianity in its image, in terms of Muslims trying to define Syriac Christianity in its image, uh, that has not happened in the same way. We don't have these entire books where you know, people are writing about these traditions, trying to pretend that they don't have skin in the game when they're actually really trying to rewrite those people's traditions for them. The classic example that's always quoted, um, and again, I'm not sure how historically valid this is, but it's that the Mongols came and they took over Baghdad and there was a big loss of knowledge, but the domination lasted. And yes, it set Baghdad back a lot, but there was the domination of the Islamic world and the Muslim world wasn't in the same way. Um, and do you think that's again down to the technologies or was it that was it that the West came with Orientalism and so their worldview was so different that they were able to um, just completely shatter the edifice that the Muslims had built? Or was it the timing that really worked out where it just so happened that the Muslims were right at the bottom Ah, oh, yeah, that's a, that. Honestly, that's a really tough question to answer. I mean, you know, one of the things, like I said, is under under uh, the rule of of Napoleon, um, they did actually kill a lot of the intelligentsia, those people who would be seen um, as as being the greatest threat. And you know, uh, the Russians uh, did the same with uh, some Muslim groups in the Caucasus. Um, and so, you know, this was a phenomena um, that unfortunately uh, happened. Um, and uh, there are, you know, I think that there was a, a kind of almost a wily nature uh, to the uh, to the process of colonialism, and uh, that they realized, in a way, that one of the best ways to dominate peoples was to limit and redefine their traditions and even their educational systems. I mean, when you have in in India. Uh, that they really kind of completely restructured uh, the educational systems in ways that cut people off, you know, from their from their traditions. And you still have in many parts of the Arab world, 
that uh, the people who are at the top are the people who are trained in Western disciplines. Doctors at the very top, everybody in, in, you know, every country in the Muslim world wants their kids to become a doctor. And then, you know, lawyers and businessmen and all this stuff. And at the bottom of the totem pole, why is your son going to Al-Azhar? What's wrong with him? Is he stupid? I mean, literally, this is a question that parents will get if their child goes to Al-Azhar. I had a good friend who wanted to go into religious studies. And, uh, and he, come from, he came from a wealthy family. He would actually, you know, his family could still take care of him if he did this. They wanted him to become a doctor. And when uh, he broke the news to his family, you know, his best friend is also a friend of mine, um, you know, knew when he was going to do it. He calls him up on the phone and he says, uh, he says, hey, how'd it go? And uh, my other friend, he just says, World War Three. I'll call you when I can. Hangs up the phone. Now, this is like, you know, but this is something that you have all over. And this is a bright guy who really could succeed in anything uh, that he did. And probably, you know, could have gone to Yale or Harvard for a PhD, given, you know, his discipline and his intellect. Um, but, you know, his parents don't want it. And this is the way that it's seen throughout. There's this bias against our own traditions uh, that you have. And that way, that masterful way of kind of turning the elite of the uh, civilization to be in favor of the paradigms that, par that prefer or give power to the colonizer, that I think is unique. I think that's a, it's, it's kind of striking how relatable that is to me, but also it's really segued us perfectly into what this episode was building the foundation for, um, which is when we talk about what happens next, we've understood where we're coming from, we can talk a little bit about colonization and its impact, but actually what the future holds is decolonizing the education, the mindset and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so, so kind of, it's, it's been a very interesting uh, discussion. I really appreciate your time. Um, and I think I, I've definitely picked up a lot from it. There was a couple of um, aha moments. Um, so I really appreciate your time. It's been, uh, it's been a very good conversation. And I think we've, we've reached a very, good point at which to stop. I, I find myself often saying, oh, we need to end now because of time. But I think here um, we've actually covered a lot of ground. Um, it will be very interesting to see what our listeners take away from this. And it will be great. Let's to stop with that you. relatable story that almost every Muslim family has had. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and it will be interesting to build up on that story and that educational um, discussion, why, why Muslims are choosing what they're doing and how do we um, how do we decolonize the education? Go for it. So it's really laid the the groundworks for our next uh, our next episode. So you've you've basically done my work for me. Inshallah. Um, well, I hope so because I'm better at post colonialism than I am at talking about the rise of Orientalism itself. Because as you can see, there are historical things there that I think other people could actually trace better than I than than I can myself. But post colonialism, I think I could do that better. Inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. Um, so yeah. That's been a really good episode. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.